With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome back once again after something of a hiatus to another episode of the AJ Bruno Show. I'm honored to be joined today by General Richard P. Mills, uh, retired lieutenant general with the U.S. Marine Corps. Uh, without further ado, good morning, and I just wanted to warn you in advance that I'm a Philadelphia Eagles fan. Oh, well, that's a, that's a shame. I was just starting to get to like you, too, on <laughs> your voice. Uh, this is a big day, of course. It's the draft day, and uh, we're open both of both the teams, both your team, the Eagles, and my team, the Giants, uh, improve themselves a little bit. Over. That's right. Yeah, let's hope so. Um, so I want to start by uh, talking about your background. Um, it's a bit unconventional compared to some of the other career officers that I've seen. Uh, we both share an interest in political science and in history, actually. Uh, so I'm wondering, what was your original plan, and uh, what was it that made you decide to go to officer candidate school instead? Well, I, uh, the, the military uh, spirit really, really attracted me when I was going to look what I want to do after I left college. Uh, and I, I looked at the Marines because I felt the Marines had the esprit de corps, uh, and kind of they offered a uh, sense of adventure, if you will, and uh, and that, that was what attracted me. Uh, I was always a military history buff growing up. Uh, my father was a veteran of World War II, and my uh, both of my grandfathers fought in World War One. So there was kind of a military uh, tradition uh, within my family. So that that attracted me as well. But I think what I what I found in the military and the reason I joined was was the sense of of, of camaraderie, of uh, of togetherness, of team spirit. That, I, that I'd also found in sports teams that I played on and in fraternities that I'd been in. And that, that appealed to me in the sense that you were doing important work. Uh, I, I thought that at the end of, my, end of my career, whatever I decided to do, I wanted to be able to look back and say, you know, I did something that, uh, that mattered a little bit. And I think that the military certainly offered me that, that opportunity. Fantastic. So um, do you have any particular military heroes, whether they're Marines or otherwise, that sort of drove and inspired you as you moved forward with uh, your career in the Corps? Well, I, you know, I certainly developed them as I, as I got to know, know folks. And uh, there are certain several, several of them in, in my career that had a great impact on me. One of them was from Philadelphia, as a matter of fact, Marty Burnt, who uh, has passed away, but he was a, uh, he was made into the uh, Lieutenant General ranks. He was a very courageous officer that uh, uh, fought in Vietnam, later on commanded a Marine Expeditionary Unit uh, in the Balkans. He, he took an interest in a, in a poor young captain uh, named Mills and, and helped me develop uh, along the ro- road and gave me some opportunities. Uh, another one, of course, was uh, General Bill Keyes, Lieutenant General Retired Bill Keyes, a Navy Cross winner in Vietnam. He was my regimental commander when I commanded a company in the uh, in the 6th Marines. He, again, took an interest in me, uh, gave me opportunities to expand my horizons, brought me up as his operations officer, took me to headquarters Marine Corps with him when he when he moved up there, and, and helped me out as I began to rise to the general officer ranks to give me some, some good sound advice and mentorship on how uh, – general officers needed to approach their commands and the uh, challenges that they, that they faced. Uh, general Buck Bedar is another one. 
He was my division commander when I was a, uh, a battalion commander. And again, mentored me and prepared me for further responsibilities as, as I moved up my career. And of course, General Al Gray, our 29th Commandant of the Marine Corps, who uh, I served uh, with and under at various points in my career, had a great impact on me. He's one of the legends of our Corps. And, uh, and again, he's been a source of mentorship even now as, as he's moved on well into his retirement. Uh, he continues to talk to me to give me advice on life and, and how I, I deal, still deal with Marines here in my job within the Marine Corps University Foundation. Fantastic. Those are some good names to look up, I think. Um, so one of the posts that you were in that really stood out to me was uh, being a military observer in Israel uh, for the Palestinian territories in particular. Uh, what did you take that from that particular experience? Well, that was, that was a very interesting experience. Uh, it was in the late 80s, and uh, it was before a desert storm. And uh, over, I became a member of the, of the uh, UNSO, which is the UN Truce Supervision Organization, which monitors the, uh, the truce between Israel and, and its Arab neighbors. Uh, I was stationed in Cairo for most of my career, and I had the opportunity there to work with a unit that was commanded by a Soviet officer. It was before the fall of the, of the wall, before the uh, dissolution of the uh, Soviet Union. So one of the few places in the world where Americans and Soviets actually worked together. My boss was, a, I was a major at the time. My boss was a, a Soviet lieutenant colonel, and we had 14 other Soviet officers uh, within the command, who, all of whom we worked with very closely. That was a huge educational experience to understand them. That always been you know, raised throughout my career to, uh, to kind of be wary of the Soviet Union and to be, uh, uh, you know, looking look at them as, as possible enemies. And to work closely with them was a, was a true education. I found them to be professional. I found them to be very competent. But I also found them very inquisitive about the, about the West and about our lifestyle. And so it was an opportunity to share information with them. I, that, I took away a lot of, uh, of a new, new respect, I guess, for the Soviet Union coming, coming out of that. And, of course, later on when they became Russia, I, I still remained in contact with a few of them for, for a bit. And, uh, and the, most of them adjusted. It also gave me an opportunity to work, both work with the Egyptian military and with the Israeli military, see how they did business, see what their differences were, and, uh, and, and get to know some people within their uh, kind of mid-level command structure uh, at various times. So it was a very, very educational. I, Israel, of course, I uh, later on traveled, uh, traveled there, worked there when I became a, a, a Marine Expeditionary Unit Commander and, worked for the, and then later worked for the uh, Marine, uh, U.S. 6th Fleet out of Gaeta, uh, Italy. So Gave me an opportunity again to make some contacts in Israel to see how the is uh, the Israeli uh, military operated, and uh, and uh, as well as with the Egyptian uh, Egyptian military, which again when I did some exercises later on with Sixth Fleet, again gave me an opportunity to understand what it was they wanted to get out of exercises that we were we were conducting. So it was a very very um, wonderful tour for my for me a development of uh, as an international officer. And another uh, sort of unique experience you had, uh, not every officer obviously gets to study at the Royal College of Defense. Uh, how did that opportunity come about for you, and what was that like? Well, it was great, another great opportunity, and uh, actually paid off huge dividends later on in my career when I uh, commanded uh, British troops in Afghanistan. Uh, um, the Royal College of Defense Studies is a, a very highly acclaimed uh, uh, international military school in, right in downtown London. The Marine Corps every other year sends a uh, lieutenant colonel or colonel to uh, to attend there, uh, as does the United States Army, United States Air Force, and the United States Navy. And uh, it was really uh, uh, eye-opening for several reasons. First of all, a great opportunity to uh, to live in a, in a wonderful city, in a wonderful country, uh, the United Kingdom, but to uh, also go to school as, an, as a foreign officer, if you will. Of course, I had attended uh, – 
Expeditionary Warfare School here at Quantico and Command Staff uh, College here at Quantico with the Marines. We had international officers in our uh, in our system, and uh, but we were kind of we were the hosts and they were the guests. And uh, tables got turned when I went to the Royal College of Defense Studies. I was a guest in their country. I was an international officer, and uh, so it was kind of a unique uh, opportunity to kind of see through a different lens the uh, professional military uh, education uh, system. But I got a chance again to meet uh, a good number of, uh, of British officers uh, across the board, both in the uh, their army, uh, their Marines, and in the United States Navy, or uh, I should say, in the Royal Navy and the Royal Air Force. Uh, some of whom I later came in contact with uh, uh, when I again when I commanded in, in Afghanistan. Uh, it was during the Balkans, the Balkans uh, situation in Europe, if you will. So it was an opportunity again to. Uh, to hear and to observe from a little bit different perspective how other countries looked at international crises as, as opposed to the United States, and also to hear some, some valid criticisms of, uh, of ways that, uh, that we operated. Um, the student body was mixed. Uh, it was very interesting. Uh, two of the uh, foreign officers were from, uh, from China, and uh, that it was interesting to get to know them, but also interesting just to get to know officers from Africa, Asia, Can you still hear me? Yeah, it was a wonderful. Okay, fading out for a second. Um, well, you mentioned uh, a lot of good stuff there. You mentioned Kosovo in particular. I know that uh, you were in several major theaters of combat. Um, that one, I think, is maybe kind of unique. Um, you know, given our strong friendship with Serbia in World War One and World War Two, I found this episode particularly tragic. And I've talked to a lot of Serbs, and often seems like they kind of forced this unfairly shoulder almost all the blame for the conflict there in the 90s. So do you have any thoughts looking back on the situation with Kosovo now? Well, I agree with you. It was a very, a very, a very tragic situation um, and because it was a civil war. And I think any time that you get into a, a civil war uh, type of conflict, uh, tragedy is, is, is everywhere that you look. Uh, and I think in, in many ways the Serbians were uh, – were painted as the villains, and uh, and there were villains on both sides, that's for sure. But certainly the Serbians, I think, were painted uh, with a paintbrush of because of the leadership that they had. Uh, the, their leadership was was uh, uh, bordered on the criminal, and 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 so it was a. I think that got the, the Serbians perhaps got painted uh, broadly with that with that paintbrush of of, of being a uh, a criminal regime and one in which uh, was taking part in. Uh, in incidents in, in within within Kosovo that were were, were were questionable to say the best, and uh, but I, I do think you're you're correct in that you know both sides it was a, it was a vicious war it was a vicious fight, and and both sides were probably equally guilty of uh, of misconduct, um, but the Serbians I, I think ultimately uh, ultimately came out as kind of the the losers of there and uh, and again I think it was just because of the poor leadership they had and uh, and some of the decisions that that leadership made. Sure. So as a, a brigadier and major general, you spent a lot of time in Iraq. Um, what was your assessment of the situation then where we stand today? Well, that, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, again, I think that when after the initial march-up, when I was a colonel during the initial march-up uh, to Baghdad, that was a very conventional war. Uh, being fought by really almost Western style, you know, Western style forces, us against uh, mechanized armored units and, and heavy infantry units that, we, that made up the uh, the Iraqi uh, armed forces. 
a very conventional, and I think that we we took it on as that kind of a fight, and uh, with a clear with a clear mission to eliminate, you know, cut off the, the head of the snake, if you will, to eliminate the regime in, in power. And I think that we uh, we did a good job at that, obviously, General, General Mattis and, uh, and and that crew that, uh, that that maneuvered the division up up the highway and the entire meth expedition. Uh, was was did, did a wonderful job, and it was a it was a quick fight, relatively relatively painless fight, and uh, and we quickly uh, you know took the initiative and, and quickly uh, uh, defeated the Iraqi army and, and put uh, Saddam Hussein into hiding. That was my first tour. Uh, when I came back in, in two thousand and eight uh, as a uh, brigadier and then a major general. Uh, we were out in El Ambar province, and that was an entirely different war. That was, that was again, an uh, insurgency fueled by uh, religious uh, fanaticism, uh, but it was also a, a fight between the Sunni and the Shia for, uh, for power within the country. And that was, like any civil war, uh, like Kosovo, a vicious, mean fight uh, that was difficult to, get, to wrap your arms around. Uh, I think ultimately... Uh, we were able to at least establish uh, some stability on the ground there for some period of time to allow the uh, civilian, civilian government to, uh, to move into power. But as you can see, it's been a long, tough fight to gain stability in that, in that part of the world. Because, again, as I say, it's, it's not that conventional war uh, where you can clearly establish uh, goals to achieve victory. But instead, it's a, it's a fight against... Uh, an ideology, it's a fight against fanaticism, and it's a, a fight against folks who are clearly convinced that God is on their side. And that's a difficult war to wage. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think now if you look at, uh, at Iraq, I think it is, it's worked its way through a very, very, very difficult time in its history. It, it seems as it has achieved uh, some level of stability. Uh, it seems as if it has achieved some freedom of action uh, in its own uh, foreign policy and its own uh, way to uh, conduct itself in the world. There's still some que- still questions, still has a ways to go. But I think when you look at the time invested, the money invested, the people that we lost, the blood that's been shed, you can see that that type of war does not have a clean cut end state. And it takes long commitment on the ground by, by top notch security forces to, uh, to achieve uh, some sort of stability within the, uh, within that environment. One thing in particular that I don't think gets really enough attention with that conflict, um, as bad as Saddam was, when he was removed, it basically kind of spelled the end and doomed the future of the Christian community in the country. And I don't really know if the coalition did enough or was able to stop that. What do you think about that? I, I don't think I don't think the coalition was aware. Uh, at least out in, in where I was and part of Iraq that I was out, out in Elba, uh, Umbar province out to the west. I'm not sure that the coalition was aware of the danger that the, that the Christian community was under. And I, I, think we, I think we as a coalition grossly underestimated um, the feelings the, the, between the various religious sects, whether they be between the, uh, the Muslim sects of uh, Sunni and Shia or between the, uh, the inter- interreligious sects with the Christians involved and the Kurds, um, I think we grossly underestimated uh, the ill will that each of them felt for the other ones and, and, and how, they would, uh, how they would mobilize that into, into uh, 
you know, killing and uh, and suppression of those uh, of those individuals. So, and I don't think the international press picked up on it at all. I think by the time it became people became aware of it, the, the, that that war was old news, and no one no one was looking at it anymore. People were looking beyond it, perhaps into Afghanistan and other places. So, did it did it get the the coverage that needed? No. Did it get the attention needed? No. Uh, and I think if we look back at that at that fight. Uh, there are there are mistakes that have been made along those lines. And one of the concerns I have is for the Kurds. I think the Kurds who who stood by us during most of that fighting. Uh, again, I think there's a situation that's going to develop there in the near future that uh, that we'll 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 ignore, and uh, and I believe that uh, we'll be wrong when we do that. Mm-hmm. No, that's a whole other mess too, especially nowadays. I think we need the Kurds as an ally in that region and. I don't know if they're getting the support they need, and I think it's important. Well, yeah, the Kurd question is very difficult. It's very difficult because of the other, you know, the uh, the Turks are involved in that. Of course, they're a NATO partner. Uh, the Iraqis are involved in that. The Iranians are involved in that. Uh, there's any number of other countries involved in the Kurd question. Uh, I think the Kurds have been have been good friends of the United States at least for the past 20 years, and uh, I think they deserve to be to be recognized as such and. Uh, and treated as such, and uh, I'm not sure that's going to happen. So you mentioned uh, Afghanistan, too. After Iraq, uh, you were chosen for a command there. Um, I read that you were particularly concerned we would leave prematurely. Um, how did this assignment compare to what it was like for you in Iraq, and you know, what are your thoughts on it now? Yeah, the, uh, the the situation in Afghanistan when I when I came in, uh, of course, we was a little bit different than the one in in Iraq, um, because of the nature of the enemy that we were fighting. It was clearly a uh, you know an insurgency that was being fueled by the uh, by the native population being fed resources from the from the outside. More perhaps you could compare it more to Vietnam than you could to uh, to Iraq. Um, but I, I, when I went in, I, I was privileged enough to be able to command the uh, the Marine surge that was uh, that was being taken in under, under President Obama. Uh, we were given about a year to turn the uh, security situation around to the south. We were in uh, Helmand Province, which was the uh, the hotbed of the Pashtun insurgency, which is uh, the you know the really the focal point of the of Taliban. Uh, we had uh, sufficient forces, I think, to uh, to to. Uh, take on the military problem, but there was also a very large economic and political problem down there of reestablishing a, an economy that would support the, the population, pull them away from the, the drug economy that fueled uh, that area for so many years, and to establish a political community that was tied to uh, a Kabul as opposed to being, uh, being just simply a, a, you know, regional, a regional uh, political organization. So there were, there were multiple challenges there. Um, I believe by the end of the year that I was there, it had nothing to do with me. It had to do with the uh, really the, the, the conduct and valor and, and uh, bravery of an awful lot of young uh, men and women who uh, who fought hard uh, to establish a secure environment. But I believe by the end of the year, we had we were looking at at least a uh, a security situation that changed dramatically on the ground. Uh, combat had dropped off. There were still some hot spots, no question about it. Sangin jumps right out at me. Uh, but overall, I think this, the security situation was much better. The 215th uh, Afghan Corps, which was on the ground with us, I think were uh, were functioning uh, reasonably well uh, with our support uh, to uh, to take on a, a a fair share of the fighting. Uh, I think that uh, 
socially we had we had turned some corners i think women's the women were were back in school we got the the education system reestablished we were welcoming both male and female students and i thought that was a a wonderful uh, a wonderful step one of the measures of success that i used to use one of the metrics of success that i used to use were the number of students that we had on a daily basis uh, within the province uh, when those rose i could i could tell the insurgents had been pushed away because they were uh, anti-education we had female students arrive at schools. We knew that they had really been pushed off into the distance because that was one thing Taliban simply couldn't uh, stomach was uh, the education of, of women. Uh, the governor was able to move fairly freely around the province uh, and had reestablished contacts with all of the major cities. So I, I felt we were certainly in a, in a good position for follow-on success. Uh, unfortunately, we began to go almost immediately uh, after that year into a drawdown and again, the situation began to deteriorate security-wise, and uh, and I think now we're in a we're in a, in a position of much like Vietnam in the in the mid '70s of, of pulling out uh, and leaving uh, some friends and allies in a very precarious situation. I I feel very badly that uh, when the total withdrawal of U.S. forces takes place, uh, I don't believe that the Taliban is going to live up to any agreement it makes. I think they're going to they're going to fight and fight hard to get back into power. And I think when they do, uh, the situation of women on the ground there will deteriorate rapidly. And I think that uh, they will once again become a haven for uh, uh, people who are unfriendly to the United States of America. So I, I'm, I'm disappointed in the investment that we've made. I'm disappointed in the effort that we made. I'm disappointed that all of that seems now to have been uh, negotiated away. Mm-hmm. Well, you anticipated what my next question was, and I, I feel the same way. Um, you know, all that sacrifice and blood and treasure and time just for, you know, to go back to where we were pre-9-11 with the situation in Afghanistan, I think it would be a real shame if it came to that, and it's looking like it might head that way. And, yeah. I, I concur with you. I think, it, I think once again, the, uh, the American public has shifted its, has shifted its focus. And, uh, you know, we're looking now at Iran. We're looking at other trouble spots in the world. And certainly, you know, as this, uh, as this pandemic uh, strikes the United States, um, I think uh, the general consensus now is going to simply be wash your hands of the effort in, in Afghanistan and, and uh, look at it for what it was, a very valiant effort, a very uh, tough effort, a very tough fight to uh, to do some good uh, in a part of the world where we have not had a lot of success. And uh, I, I, again, I, I worry every day that the, uh, the, the, the sacrifice made by so many families here in the United States and elsewhere. We had an awful lot of friends and allies fighting alongside of us, but all that sacrifice, all that treasure of, of young lives will have been wasted. Terrible. Sure. Um, so you mentioned the, the pandemic here. We obviously have a, a major crisis now with that going on, and that's obviously causing major security issues. Um, so we see China in the news regularly. Uh, what do you personally see as the greatest national security and military threat to the U.S. Uh, presently and looking forward to the future? Well, I, I think that the um, pandemic has pointed out uh, one significant threat that I think that we that we face, and I think that 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 is that we have tied ourselves uh, economically uh, into so many uh, into so many places across the world that we are so tied into some other countries for very very uh, critical parts of our economy, parts of our social structure, that uh, that that is a a gap. That, that can be exploited. 
Um, I, I don't think that the, the Chinese uh, planted this uh, this virus uh, on purpose. I think it was an accidental uh, an accidental act where it spread. But I think it's pointed out very critically that uh, we can be brought to our knees very rapidly by something along these lines. That we don't have to necessarily face uh, the traditional military threats of you know more ships, more planes, more rockets. And instead, it's the it's the non-conventional, it's the non-traditional threats that we have to worry about, whether that be in the cyber world or here in the in the, you know, in the biological uh, uh, weapons uh, world. And so, I think that we've we've pointed out to ourselves, we've hopefully had pointed out to us ourselves uh, where where our gaps lie in our international defense, uh, areas in which we are weak that can be exploited, and. Uh, I'm sure the rest of the world, uh, some of the uh, people we, who live there who are not particularly friendly to us are taking notes. Um, when you take a look at what, the, what this pandemic has done to our, uh, to our economy, with unfortunately, you know, a relatively small number of casualties. I mean, anybody who dies, obviously, is a tragedy. But uh, when you look at the numbers involved, you know, it hasn't been all of that uh, devastating. And yet, uh, the, you know, it's crushed the stock market. It's, and our economy will take years to recover. And... Uh, it's very worrisome that, uh, that, that there's a uh, an area of defense that we have not uh, paid uh, significant attention to. And I don't think that's this administration's problem. I don't think it's the last administration's problem. It's just simply that uh, it's always tough to uh, predict where the next threat comes from. And, and people had kind of looked past uh, the fact that uh, that we are susceptible to this, this kind of attack uh, should one of our uh, uh, opponents decide to, to wage war in that manner. No, there hasn't been enough preparation in general. I agree. Um, I mentioned cyberspace. I, mean, I know as a lieutenant general, you uh, led cyberspace command of the Marines. And um, I think I read something, too, about when you were in Afghanistan. Apparently, that played a big part in your success there as well. <laughs> uh, well, in Afghanistan, I, I really uh, – I can't really talk about cyber in Afghanistan. I will say that in Afghanistan, we use electronic uh, – means to uh to help us in our fight against the uh against taliban um, uh, as, as commander of, of marine corps cyber i was in on the early de- developmental steps of it we've come a tremendously long way since uh, just the last uh, 10 years uh and i think that cyber is now recognized as a war as a war fighting function it's recognized as a uh, environment in which we will and probably are right now fighting the uh, the next uh, big battle uh, I think the person that controls the electronic uh, spectrum, you know, will control the next battlefields. And I, I believe that if you uh, staying in the unclassified version, that, that, that there are uh, there are threats against us on a daily basis. There are attacks waged against this country on a daily basis uh, by individuals and by organizations and by other countries. That we have to be uh, prepared to defend ourselves. And uh, so I think Cyber Command has come a tremendously long way in being able to do that. Uh, and I think the uh, the civilian world recognizes the threat that, that cyber uh, poses to their uh, to their success, and, they, and even and the civilian world is beginning to come around it, where cyber protection uh, becomes a major major factor in, in everything they they do. And I think if you tie that into the pandemic uh, environment, in which we are now all working remotely from home, uh, the, the cyber world becomes even more critical. Whether you're talking about national defense or you talk about the national economy, and then and the more people that are on that net, the more people that are using that world, the more business that takes place uh, via cyber as opposed to uh, face-to-face communications, again, leads, leads us vulnerable to attacks in the future. And so it's an area in which we have to have our best people. 
I think we have to have our best efforts to ensure that we're uh, that we're safe, protected, and able to uh, operate in that world freely. No, definitely. Um, just a heads up, there'll be an automated time notification. You can ignore that. We can go a little over that. Um, so before uh, a few final miscellaneous questions, uh, I skipped over, sure. obviously, quite a few other impressive roles you undertook in your career. Is there a place you were stationed or a position you held which particularly stands out in memory? Well, you know, it's a question that uh, I guess every military officer gets, <laughs> at, uh, especially as he closes out his, his career. Is, you know, what, was your favorite, what was your favorite assignment? Uh, I, I was lucky. I didn't really have any bad assignments. There was never, I never had an assignment that I, that I disliked or wanted to get away from. I remember an old first sergeant uh, telling me when I was a second lieutenant that the, the two best jobs in the Marine Corps were the one that you had and the one that you're going to go to next. So in my case, that worked out to be, to be very true. But I think that the assignment, obviously, that was the most uh, challenging and the most uh, rewarding was my assignment to Afghanistan as uh, to command the uh, the one mess uh, forward forces. You know, you spend your career uh, in the military preparing to go to war and, and learning how to fight the war and hopefully uh, uh, being being able to win the war. And uh, so when the opportunity comes along for you to go and do what you practiced uh, for so many years, what you've uh, studied and what you've uh, thought about, and the opportunity comes along to actually do it, uh, the challenge is great. Uh, but it's uh, amazing, rewarding, amazing, rewarding if you go there and you do uh, a satisfactory job. And so I would think my tour in, in Afghanistan as the one mess forward commander and then later on as the uh, regional command uh, southwest uh, commander for NATO was probably the most uh, challenging job that I had and, and ultimately the most uh, the most rewarding and the one in which I feel the most uh, most satisfaction having performed uh, reasonably well. Great. Before I uh, ask uh, you know, what you're working on, you know, what you've been involved with um, now, um, there's one issue in particular. Um, the Marines and the military in general, I always view it as kind of a protector of America's values. Um, so to me, it was pretty troubling when the Don't Ask, Don't Tell repeal went through, and it seems like we were trying to impose some sort of radical social engineering on our armed forces. Is there anything you're willing to say about what happened looking back now? I would just say that the military and obviously the Marine Corps is a reflection of uh, of the values of uh, of society of the United States society as a whole, and that uh, at times during the uh, during the history of the Corps we've had to we've had to change uh, to reflect those those changing values, whether it be you know, the integration, uh, full integration uh, of, uh, of racial uh, groups uh, after World War II, and then some of the social changes that I saw during during my career to to include the position of don't ask don't tell and then opening it up uh, even even more a little bit later in my career um as a military officer you always have the you always have the opportunity to uh, to resign if you if you are given orders that you can't comply with um but i think that you also have to understand that uh, again we are the our masters our civilian masters are the ones who control the uh, how the military operates how the marine corps operates and you have you have a constitutional obligation and a legal obligation to obey those orders when they come down. Um, sometimes whether you agree with them or not. Uh, and so I think that it's, uh, it's every Marine's duty uh, to, uh, to obey the direction he's given and to carry it out. If he can't, then I think that he's uh, morally obligated to, uh, to resign. 
So uh, since retiring, uh, you've continued on with some pretty important work. Uh, would you tell us more about what the Marine Corps University Foundation is all about and what you're doing there? Sure, absolutely. Please do that. I'm the president and CEO of the Marine Corps University Foundation. The, the Marine Corps, of course, has a professional military school system uh, for uh, various levels of rank, to, uh, both officer and enlisted. They are all headquartered here at Quantico, Virginia, on board the Marine base here. Uh, and, and that university system, like any university system, is given a budget uh, by, the, uh, by the Marine Corps. And that budget often is not quite uh, enough to meet some of the demands that the university, or that the university has or some of, the, uh, some of the goals it wants to establish. So what the Marine Corps University Foundation does, it's a 501c3 nonprofit. It raises money from private means. Uh, to uh, be able to uh, help to fund those requirements the university needs to, uh, to carry out its great work of educating our next generation of, of leaders. So we do such things as provide uh, chairs, uh, professorships that, uh, that teach over at the university. When I went through the university uh, years and years and years ago, all of the professors you saw were military officers in uniform, and they, they did a great job, but they were professional military officers delegated to be teachers for a year, and off they did and did their best job. Now we have civilians and we bring in from, uh, from really prestigious uh, academic backgrounds, uh, Ivy League, uh, places like Stanford, and, and other schools. We bring them in, they, they take the chair for two years, and they, uh, they, they, are, they mentor and teach the students, whether they be uh, Marine captains, Marine majors, Marine lieutenant colonels or colonels, and they, and they bring with them a very fresh and very uh, encouraging uh, set of thoughts and set of ideals, and uh, it's a great interchange. It's a great experience for our, for our students to learn. We also fund seminars. We fund uh, faculty research. The things that any, uh, that any university out in the civilian world has as well during their, for, their, uh, for their association that supports their, uh, their presence as well. So it's, it's rewarding for me. It allows me to keep in touch with the, uh, with the Marine Corps. It allows me to help out, uh, help out the university that I, that I uh, got a lot from both as a student and later on as a commander when I had uh, graduates of the university come over and, uh, and assist me and, 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 and serve on my staffs. And so it's a, it's a great opportunity to stay current, to stay active, and to uh, to remain semper fi. Fantastic. Uh, you're also a board member with the American Battlefield Trust. That's something I have a deep interest in. I mean, touring our historic battlefields, preserving them is obviously tremendously important. Uh, what can you tell us about that? And how do you think we're doing in terms of protecting those board members? Oh, yeah, that, I, that's some uh, pro bono work that I do. I, I'm on the uh, the board of uh, of trustees of the American Battlefield Trust, formerly it was the Civil War uh, Trust, and that preserves battlefields here within the United States where significant uh, uh, military action took place. Focuses on the Civil War, but it also uh, has uh, it also does the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, uh, and it, it looks for land around uh, battlefields or where historical uh, efforts took place that are under threat of development. And it uh, it purchases those uh, those pieces of property at uh, fair market value, and then passes those pieces of property onto the national park or the state park systems for inclusion, usually in battlefields that already exist. Gettysburg's a great example. Vicksburg's another great example. Key pieces of property where significant action took place, uh, where fighting took place, where American blood was shed, and, and ensuring it's preserved for uh, for future generations to understand what what took place there. It also has a, a wonderful education. Uh, department which provides educational support out to uh, public and private schools who want to teach about the American wars. Uh, and uh, so it does a great job, I think, of, of educating the American public and educating American educators as to how to teach 
what the impact and what the importance of what those young men and women did uh, years ago, uh, wearing this nation's cloth and and, uh, and defending the ideals that that allow uh, allow us to live the great life that we live live here in America. Uh, how are they doing? I think they're doing a wonderful job. They're doing a wonderful job. They are probably the most successful uh, private uh, uh, preservation uh, project in American history. I think they're doing a terrific job of identifying key property that needs to be that needs to be preserved, and then raising money. Uh, both from government and from private means to, to do so. Is there a lot of challenges ahead? Absolutely. Key pieces of terrain in places like Franklin, Tennessee, uh, around Petersburg and Revolutionary War sites down in South Carolina are under threat. And once that, uh, that piece of property where Americans fought and died becomes a, uh, you know, a Kmart parking lot or becomes a McDonald's, um, they're lost, it's lost forever. And, uh, I'd also point out that the university, both the Marine Corps University and um, all military schools, use those battlefields as outdoor classrooms. They teach leadership uh, through staff rides. They teach leadership through uh, through classes taught on the ground where future commanders can walk the ground and look at the tactical problems that past commanders had and, and, and draw learning experiences uh, from it. So it's a, uh, it's a great, uh, again, another great opportunity for me to, to, uh, to uh, hopefully uh, pass something on to the generations that follow me. I'm a, a father of six and a grandfather of eight, and I, I'm appalled at the uh, the lack of uh, history teaching that takes place in, in our public schools today, and the history teaching that does take place, the uh, the slant that it often has away from the again the sacrifices that uh, young men and women made uh, so many years ago to, for us to uh, enjoy the country we enjoy. No, it's terrible, especially nowadays. I feel like there's fewer and fewer people who really care about them, you know, for everything that was built. So they could be able to you know, basically not have any interest in it. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate, I think, for the future of the country. It's, it's important. To I think you're absolutely right. Definitely. Um, so is there any sort of book or TV show or movie about the Marines or military in general that you're particularly fond of? Uh, for me, I thought the Pacific was a masterpiece and especially showed Marines at their best. Yeah, I thought the Pacific did, did a wonderful job of, uh, of both explaining the, uh, you know, the, uh, the military side of it, but also the personal side of, of uh, young men and women who go to who go to war and go to uh, to achieve uh, significant national uh, significant national goals and, and willing to sacrifice uh, up to and including their own lives to to achieve those goals. Um, and I think I think there, there have been you know any number of. Uh, of any of good good war movies out about even about our, our recent conflicts, uh, you know I think if you look at the movie Hurt Locker, for instance, I thought there were some excellent scenes in there that showed the the allure sometimes of, of what combat is and that it, the the challenge that people have the the, the 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 adrenaline rush you get when someone's when you're making those kinds of decisions on a daily those life and death decisions on a daily basis, um, but. I, I think ones that look at Private Ryan, for instance, again the uh, the, the moments there as they waded ashore in D-Day through the through the, the hail of bullets from the German uh, defenders. Again, anything that I think any war movie that can show the realism and the and the impact on the individual, I think is 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 very 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 impressive. Uh, so I've enjoyed all those. So uh, before I let you go, um, obviously you mentioned it's draft day. You don't have Eli Manning anymore. So what do you think uh, your Giants <laughs> need to do? Well, I'm, I'm still hoping maybe the Redskins uh, you stumble on the way to the uh, on the way to handing their 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 uh, their choice in, and we and we get Chase Young out of Ohio State. 
But I do think with uh, with Daniel Jones, who I, I think is going to be a good good young quarterback. He's not Eli Manning, and one of my grandsons is actually named after Eli. Uh, he's not Eli Manning, but I think he's going to be a very very good quarterback for us for next uh, ten years. But we need to protect the guy. So I think if we don't get that defensive end out of Ohio State, I, I like to get one of those behemoth tackles and and anchor that line that we've had so much trouble with. I mean, because when the Eagles come at you, that defense they got. And they come for blood, and you got to be ready to uh, to hold them off uh, to give uh, give poor old Daniel Jones a few seconds anyway to find somebody. But uh, I think it's going to be an interesting race in the uh, in the East this year. I think certainly the Cowboys are are tough; they're always tough. But the Eagles play the Cowboys really well, and I think that uh, the Redskins with a new coach, uh, if their quarterback comes around, I think they'll be uh, they'll be interesting to watch as well. And and the Giants, uh, you know, we were always dangerous, but. Uh, I think we're still a few years away from contending. So I think it's going to be an Eagles-Cowboys uh, match with the Redskins being the spoiler in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you get up to any Giants games these days or just when they're down in Washington? Uh, once in a while I'll get up there. I have some friends who have season tickets, so I, once in a while I get, I'll get up and, and, and uh, see a game. But, but uh, you know, I, I have that uh, I, one of those uh, TV packages that lets me see all the Giant games uh, from the comfort of my, my living room couch. So that, that's a pretty nice way to travel, too. So, uh, and then occasionally I'll get out to see them if they come down here to D.C. And uh, when you wade into that Redskin Park, uh, it's almost as frightening as going up to uh, the Philadelphia field there and, uh, and going in there wearing your giant colors. That's a, you know, that makes Afghanistan look like, uh, you know, fairyland. Well, at least there's a shared disdain of the, of the Cowboys, even though they claim that. There you go. There you go. Hey, I've really enjoyed talking, and I hope, yeah. uh, hope, you, hope I didn't uh, wander too much off what you were trying to do and uh, look forward to uh, hearing from you again. Oh, definitely. I appreciate your time, and it was all very insightful. Thanks a lot. Great. Thanks a lot. Out of here. So that was General Richard P. Mills. Uh, got through a lot of topics there and um, you know, dug into a lot about his service in the Marines. So, um, and got off a little bit topic, off topic a little bit too, but that's okay because football is also. Anyway, um, so that has been uh, your episode today and we'll hopefully have some good installments coming up soon so once again uh, this has been AJ Bruno thanks a lot and see you later Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.